Well, good morning. Um, good to be with you all this morning. My name is Ryan, one of the pastors here. If you uh, have a Bible, go ahead and open it to Genesis 21. Or if you are using the Pew Bible, that'll be on page 15. We are almost out of our series on the life of Abraham, Grace is a Mission. And uh, we come now to an exciting stop in this narrative where one of God's promises is finally fulfilled for Abraham and Sarah, and that is the birth of Isaac. So let me read for us, for us chapter 21, verses 1 to 21. Um, let's give our attention to the reading of God's Word. The Lord visited Sarah as he had said, and the Lord did to Sarah as he had promised. And Sarah conceived and bore Abraham a son in his old age at the time of which God had spoken to him. Abraham called the name of his son who was born to him, whom Sarah bore him, Isaac. And Abraham circumcised his son when he was uh, eight days old, as God had commanded him. Abraham was a hundred years old when his son Isaac was born to him. And Sarah said, God has made laughter for me. Everyone who hears will laugh over me. And she said, who would have said to Abraham that Sarah would nurse children? Yet I have, yet I have borne him a son in his old age. Verse 8. And the child grew and was weaned. And Abraham made a great feast on the day that Isaac was weaned. But Sarah saw the son of Hagar, the Egyptian, who she had borne to Abraham, laughing. So she said to Abraham, cast out this slave woman with her son. For the son of this slave woman shall not be heir with my son Isaac. And the thing was very displeasing to Abraham on account of his son. But God said to Abraham, do not, do not displease, displease or be not displeased because of the boy and because of your slave woman. Whatever Sarah says to you, do as she tells you. For through Isaac shall your offspring be named. And I will make a nation, a nation of the son of the slave woman, slave woman also, because he is your offspring. So Abraham rose early in the morning and took bread and a skin of water and gave it to Hagar, putting it on her shoulder along with the child and sent her away. And she departed and wandered in the wilderness of Beersheba. When the water and the skin was gone, she put the child under one of the bushes. Then she went and sat down opposite him a good way off, about the distance of a bow shot. For she said, let me not look on the death of my child. And as she sat opposite him, she lifted up her voice and wept. And God heard the voice of the boy and the angel of God called to Hagar and from heaven and said to her, What troubles you, Hagar? Fear not, for God has heard the voice of the boy where he is. Up, lift up the boy and hold him fast with your hand, for I will make him into a great nation. Then God opened her eyes and she saw a well of water and she went and filled the skin with water and gave the boy a drink. And God was with the boy, and he grew up. And he lived in the wilderness and became an expert with the bow. He lived in the wilderness of Paran, and his mother took a wife for him from the land of Egypt. This is God's word. Let me pray and ask him to teach us his word this morning. Heavenly Father, we pause for a moment and ask for your presence amongst us through your spirit. We pray that you would do a miracle this morning, and by miracle that you would Soften hardened hearts, um, hearts that tend to doubt your truth and your promise to us. Um, 
Would you open our eyes and our ears as well that we may see and hear things otherwise we could not? Do this for your glory, we pray. Amen. Well, I was deciding between one or two ways to introduce the sermon until yesterday afternoon around 4.45 uh, when it was time for our family to go and have family pictures made. And you're laughing because you probably know what happens uh, leading up to and oftentimes during family picture time. Um, and it caused me to just sort of laugh too, because what is it about taking family pictures that brings out the worst in everybody? Um, I, I don't know. I, I, I don't know. If you were within two blocks, uh, two block radius of our house leading up to, to 445, you would have thought that we had our children on a death march um, with the screaming and the yelling and um, on both sides and the crying and the, I don't want to wear this and why do I have to go? Can't I stay here? Which is always my favorite because it's a family picture, you know, and you're just as an adult, you're like, the point of this is for all of us to be in the picture. And then there's a part of me daydreaming at some point wondering, what if we just left them here? And went and like got a picture taken. And then 15, 20 years later, when they realized, you know, you know, when they were looking for excuses as to why we don't love them, they could hold up this picture and be like, see, like, no, you chose not to be in the picture. You're sitting at home crying during this, this time. But we didn't do that. Um, Ada even began preparing them several days in advance. You know, hey, on Saturday, we're going to do some soccer. But on Saturday at 445, we're going to go take family pictures. Get excited. Um, But that didn't seem to help. Now, I will say, just to kind of come full circle, once we got to the shoot, the girls rallied, and it was great. They did a great job. We got in there, got our work done, took some great pictures, went home, and had some brownies. I mean, what what else can you do after a day like this? But uh, what, was, what was happening in the two hours leading up to that is really a picture of who we are as God's children. Uh, it, it's a picture of who we are as God's children and, and who he is to us as a parent. And we see that so clearly in this narrative, uh, not, all the, not, necessarily, not, not just all the way through, or sorry, not, not just with Abraham and Sarah, but all the way through Genesis. But we see that so clearly, this picture of who God is and, and we as his children. That is, we are creatures that are bent towards doubting God when he has given us no reason to doubt him, right? Instead of trusting God when he has given us every reason to trust him. And the picture in the Old Testament, the model for this, uh, most of the time, is this parent-child model. There are other models, but, but the one that, that, that we see so evidently in this text is the parent-child model But God is the father and Israel is the child. And it's not that we don't, like Israel, it's not that we don't ever trust God. It's not that we're saying that we never trust him. But it's that our hearts are naturally bent because of of the fall, because of sin, right? Uh, To doubt him. And so much of our lives, if we are honest, internally speaking, we can dress it up. But internally speaking, so much of our lives looks like the two hours in my house on Saturday morning leading up to family picture night. Screaming, crying, demanding. I don't want to wear this. Why can't I stay here? Where are we going? What are you doing? And it goes on and on and on. In other words, not trusting a God who has given us every reason to trust him. 
But here's what I want us to see this morning. God knows this already about you. He knows about family picture day in your heart. He knows, this, he, he knows about the doubting. He knows about the, the inability to stay the course. And you, that, that, that is your heart. That's why he's bent on giving you a new heart. He knows this about you, but he's committed to you anyway. And that's what we see in the story. He is committed to us. And we see in the story the depths of his love and his pursuit of us as we look at Abraham and Sarah. And one of the reasons he does this is so that we will trust him and that we will then go into the world pursuing and loving others the way that he has pursued and loved us. And that is our theme. That is grace turned into mission. So I want us to look at really one question this morning. How does God love and pursue us? How does he love and pursue us in this text specifically? And there are two ways there. He loves us and he pursues us in promise. And he loves and pursues us in the midst of our mess. Okay? He loves and pursues us in promise and he loves and pursues us in the midst of our mess. Let's take the first one that God loves and pursues us first in promise. And as we look at verses 1 to 7 for this particular section, you know, this, is the, this is the announcement of uh, the birth of Isaac. It's you know, the long awaited, the celebrated, right? And what I want us to see in this section is that what we learn about God is that God commits to us way before we ever commit to him. He is committed to us in promise way before we ever commit to him. As I said, we come to this point where Isaac is born, and it's been 25 years, friends. 25 years Abraham and Sarah have been waiting on this promise to be fulfilled. This is 25 years ago was the first time God came to Abraham and Sarah and told them, you're going to have a child. All right, think about it. Let that set in for just a second. Waiting, as we know, can be extremely difficult. Um, they have wavered, though, in the midst of this waiting. They've wavered between doubt and obedience. They have trusted in God at times, and other times they haven't. Uh, we'll look at that here in, in a second. They have also displayed, or displayed incredible acts of obedience, but also incredible acts of disobedience by taking matters into their own hands. And by now, we should be actually seeing ourselves in Abraham and Sarah more than maybe we thought we would as we've begun this uh, series. But we start in chapter 21 with good news. A child is born. A child is born. Right? The cries of the baby go out throughout the camp early in the morning. Hallelujah. It's happened. And we're reminded of this the, the, this promise in verse 1 where it seems to go out of its way to remind us that this is God's doing. The Lord visited Sarah as he had said. And the Lord did to Sarah as he had promised. See, it's a reminder that God has committed himself to us. He has promised. He, he is pursuing and loving us in that promise. He is the one working. He is the one doing something. He is the one who has called Abraham and Sarah to begin with, and he's the one who will do whatever it is that's going to happen that in order for them to be a blessing to the world, to the nations. All of this is predicated on God himself. Why? Because this is how he loves and pursues us, in promise. In promise. He does it by making promises to us and keeping them, and the reason for this is because God commits to Abraham and, Abraham and Sarah way before they commit to him. I would even say, they, I mean, you can say God commits to them before they even know who God is. 
It is a parent-child commitment. All of us have parents of some shape or form. And all of us would say, my parents committed to me way before I ever committed to them. They committed to me before I even knew who they were. I mean, that, that's a parent-child relationship. That is who God is. That's who he is showing himself to be in this story. The section here concludes, though, with Abraham and Sarah's responding in obedience, which is good. They named the boy Isaac, as God had asked, and they circumcised him on the eighth day. They would make really good Presbyterians. New covenant, new covenant Presbyterians. But God doesn't just commit to Abraham and Sarah as long as they don't mess up. And this gets to where we, you know, we enter into the story. God is committed to them in the midst of their doubts, in the midst of their failures to obey. And we have seen this throughout the Abrahamic narrative in a couple of ways. First, just in flat-out disobedience, right? I mean, what, what have we seen Abraham and Sarah do here? Just this is a recap. We've seen Abraham sort of sell his wife, sell his wife out, trade her off to an Egyptian pharaoh and a king twice. I'm not really sure what that's about. And for the record, though, let me just say that's wrong. Um, God does not, you know, he's not, he's not pleased with that. That is not how women should be treated. That is not how, um, you know, Abraham should not have done that. Abraham does that because he's afraid. He's trying to save his own skin. Um, but he's done that. Sarah has had her own moments, right? She's sort of seen this promise and, um, she's decided, well, I don't know if God's going to do this. So I'm going to kind of take matters in my own hand. And he's given her husband, uh, a servant to have a child, and that's Hagar, who shows up later, and she has Ishmael. Um, and this is the way that Sarah has not trusted, and the way that Sarah has blatantly disobeyed in these promises. Um, but this doesn't make God, and this is the key, less committed to them. This doesn't make God less committed to them. The second way we see this, though, and we see all of this really wrapped in this metaphor of laughter, and, you know, I want to stop here for a second, for a second because it's, and maybe you've noticed this, but um, in verses 6 to, six to 7, I think it's neat. Sarah breaks out in the song, and it's here that this, this really fascinating wordplay throughout the narrative uh, on the word Isaac, which Isaac means laughter. And this started back in chapter 17, if you recall, where God promises uh, to Abraham uh, that you're going to have a son. And what does Abraham do? He falls on the, on the ground and he starts laughing. So here we are preparing the way for this. And then it shows up again in chapter 18 as God and the angel men come down to visit and look at, look at Sodom and Gomorrah. And God again tells Abraham, you're going to have a son. And Sarah overhears this. And what does she begin to do? What's, what's her response? Her response is one of laughter. And this laughter is born out of doubt, but it, it's nuanced because it's going to be in contrast to another form of laughter we've seen already. But Sarah's laughter is sort of like, okay, I guess, right? You know, it, it, it's an astonishment. It is, uh, I, I, I don't know how to enter into this type of promise that you're making to me because it seems too unbelievable, but okay, we'll go with it. You know, and, and she says this over and over, and as we've read, basically pointing to her age. Have you seen how old I am? Are you aware? How is this going to happen? The, the contrast of laughter that, that's been going on is, is a mocking laughter. And it's the same root word there, which, which is where we get Isaac. And we, the first time we see this is in 19 when Lot is trying to get his son-in-law out, if you remember. He says, Go, get out of here. And what does the son-in-law think that he's doing? He's like jesting. And it's the same word. It's laughter. It's a mocking type of laughter. So that's, that's the son-in-law's response to Lot when he's telling him to get out of Sodom because God's about to destroy it. He mocks at him. And then we see it again in this section 
where it's Ishmael who's doing the, the mocking or the Isaacing. And so it's all over the narrative. It's fascinating. It's one of those things that, you know, maybe as just a pastor I want to bring up and show you. But I think it also sets the tone for um, the, the, the type of commitment in the midst of, of, of all this doubting that God is, God, God, that's who God is. Um, and so Sarah, at the end of this section, having received the promise that God made to her, says in verses 6 to 8, you know, she, she finally gets it. And she says, God has made, this is a song, by the way, this is more poetry. God has made laughter for me. Everyone who hears will laugh over me. You know, and, and, and what is she saying here? She's saying that because of Isaac, people will be reminded of the ridiculous promises of God that he makes and keeps. This is the new part that he actually makes and keeps promises that I don't even know even where to begin to believe. I don't even know how to believe them, but this is what God does. This is who he is. Some people have even wanted to say it's God who gets the last laugh here. But it's here in the midst of this laughter that we see a unique way how God loves and pursues us. Sarah, she actually lies to God back in chapter 18. But what's the point? God is committed to Sarah. God is committed to Abraham. God is committed to Israel. God is committed to you and to me. And he does this through his promises that are often too much for man to consider, too often too much for them, for us to understand, but promises that we must trust. But ultimately, we just don't. We don't know what to do with them. And what I love about the Sarah and Abraham story is God doesn't just stop his pursuit of them or become less committed to them. In the midst of their doubts, in the midst of their struggles, in the midst of their blatant disobedience, he doesn't stop. He's relentless in his pursuit of them. And before we move on to the rest of this chapter, it's important to note that in the fulfilling of this promise to Abraham and Sarah, God is essentially saying, this is is what I'm about. Will you trust me? Will you trust me? Because what God doesn't do, which he could have done, is say, look, I'm done with you. I'm done with you. I'll find someone else. He doesn't, he doesn't do this. And you know why? Because he's committed in promise. He's committed in promise to Abraham and Sarah. Look, it's only going to get worse for Israel. I mean, if we just look at the stories coming with Isaac and Jacob and Joseph, David, like, it's just going to get worse. And, and this is where sort of we begin to understand, if we recall chapter 15, God's promise with the covenant of him binding that covenant promise to himself. Because there's, there's a part of this promise that we just have no business being a part of. But that's where God moves in the most. Because he's committed to us and he pursues us in this way through his promise. The God of the Bible, you might say, is in the business of creating laughter where there is no laughter. That is creating life, creating a way where there is no life, where there is no way. And this, friends, is grace. This is a picture of grace for us here in in the Old Testament. And this grace is either, one, too improbable for you, sort of on a reason scale. How can life be created in a woman who's of this age? And and how can these things happen that defies science? Either it's too improbable for us, or what I would suggest, it's, it's just too wonderful It's too wonderful to consider, to even open ourselves up to. And so in that way, it is always going to be easier for you to doubt this. 
it's always going to be easier for you to figure out ways to meddle and to sort of, uh, okay, yeah, God, you said this over here, but I really need to cover my bases over here. Instead of sitting and waiting. Instead of trusting that he is going to do this 25 years. Some would say that's a very long time. Some would say that's a long time to stay committed to somebody who's not trustworthy. (laughs) But that's not who this is. God's in it for the long haul, friends. He loves and pursues us in promise. And we get the very first taste of that here with the birth of Isaac. What's the point? God loves and pursues us in promise. And this means that he, friends, is committed to us way before we are ever committed to him. And that is grace. The second point here, the second way God loves and pursues us is in spite, though, of our mess. And this takes us through the rest of what we read in verses 8 to 21. So much of this chapter, uh, it's hard to know what not to talk about because there's so much here. But let me summarize this in sort of 30 seconds. Um, There's the birth of Isaac, and it comes and goes. And if you're reading this as a narrative, it's like, here's this moment, seven verses. (laughs) What, what about this moment, right? This is it. This is, this, this, what, don't you think like this would cause Sarah and Abraham to, to obey and, okay, God, I got it. You know, we did a few things over here uh, wrongfully out of disobedience, but you came through and uh, now we're ready to trust you. And, and of course, that's not what happens. Um, it's not what happens throughout the rest of uh, Israel's life. The birth comes and goes and we come to this point where Abraham throws Isaac a party. And, and this is really more of a picture of just the chaos that has ensued that disobedience has really birthed. So Abraham throws him a party. It's a weaning party. Isaac would have been about three years of age. And, um, and so in the midst of this party, we get this scene here where Sarah catches Ishmael laughing. And this is something, Ishmael would be about 16 at this point. This is something Ishmael certainly would have done many of times up to this point. And why? Because, well, before Isaac shows up, he's the, he's the faux heir. And sort of the question there is, what's going to happen when Isaac is born? You know, for these 13 years that Ishmael's been around, I mean, is he going to be the heir? Is, are the promises going to come through him now? And what, what does that mean for him? And so then the son is born, and now there's this, uh, what are we going to do? And so Sarah catches this mocking laughter again, right? The, the contrast laughter. And she doesn't think about God's promises at this point. She says, y'all got to go. And one of the reasons she does this, and it's, it's not necessarily all, all bad on her part. I mean, she's, she's recognizing that Ishmael poses a threat to Isaac. Let me make that clear. But one of the reasons she, she does this, and I came across this in, in our reading, is that in the Lipit Ishtar Code of Mesopotamia, if you weren't reading that this morning, it's okay. Um, it says that a slave, slave children born of the master have legitimate rights to the inheritance of that master. Ishmael has legitimate rights to the inheritance of Abraham. Now, what can also be done in exchange for that inheritance is they can be given their freedom, which is often what happened. And what probably Sarah is appealing to in this code and in this text. But you see this, and so she's demanding for them to be cast out, and then this creates another just... Like Abraham's torn, and you, you don't get the weight of that as you just sort of read over that sentence, but this is a divorce for him. Not so much between him and Hagar, but he's losing his son. 
because he realizes they have to go. God actually intervenes, though, in the midst of this. And this is sort of the point. It's like, where is God in the midst of this Jerry Springer activity where all this stuff has just kind of come out because of disobedience? Like the only reason Hagar is here and Ishmael is here is because of Sarah and Abraham's disobedience and lack of trust. And you would think, and maybe some of us would think, that God would just sort of abandon this part of it. Look, I did my part, verses 1 to 7. Here's the promise. Y'all can handle the rest of it, but no. The narrative is so intent on showing us that God is right there in the midst of it. He's right there in the midst of their mess. And, and, and it's, it's so that you see the extent of his love and pursuit of his people. And what it begins to tell us, which is actually even better news for us this morning, it isn't just that God is committed to you before you're ever committed to him. It's God is always going to be far more committed to you than you will ever be committed to him. God sides with Sarah in this. And Sarah is is missing a, a key point Though in the midst of her sending Ishmael and Hagar away, even though it's not incredibly wrong. But it begins to give birth to the other problem that we're leading to here. And that is, what she's missing is that this inheritance isn't hers to give. It's not Ishmael's to give or receive either. This this inheritance, this promise is God's. So here would have been a moment here for her to, to say, look... I get the mocking laughter of my son-in-law, stepson. I forget the, yeah, just who, who, who Ishmael is. But I think I can trust that God, God said the promises are going to come through Isaac. I'm going to trust that. But that's not what she does. And God doesn't, you know, scold her for that. He tells Abraham, do what she says. Send her away. But like any promise that is being fulfilled, it often creates problems for us still. As I said, we don't begin, Abraham and Sarah don't begin trusting God in the midst of this promise fulfilled. Neither do we. Because now what are they going to do now that his promise, Isaac, has shown or has come? Like any parent, Sarah sees a threat to her child's welfare and she begins to act. And the temptation now will be to put their trust in Isaac and not in God through whom Isaac came in the first place. And see, for parents in the room, we understand this temptation. You've waited 25 years for this child. He or she arrives. And nothing is going to get between you and that child or what's promised that child or the best things for that child. And there's this line there of responsibility and idolatry that Abraham and Sarah are way too close to. And if not, already over. How easy it is going to be for them and how often easy it is for us to go from praying to the God for this child to forgetting God because of this child. And to see that. This is what's happening to Abraham and Sarah at this point. It won't be until the next chapter that God will deal with this idol of Abraham's when he's asked, when he asks him to sacrifice his son. But you see, even in the midst of promises fulfilled by God, we still doubt and we don't trust. And our hearts move from one thing to the other to build hope, to trust in. And it's idolatry, friends. 
And that idolatry creates 15 other messes in our lives. And it's, it's here that, that, though, that we see that God never leaves in spite of that mess that we create. He's right there in the middle of it. He's right there when Abraham has to see his son Ishmael go. He's right there when Hagar and Ishmael practically are about to die. And the care that he gives them and, and how he protects them is, is, is another aspect of the story that's just really overwhelming. They're not, they're not part of the line of promise, but his grace is still extending to them. And the reason he does this is because he's committed to them. And he's committed to them way more than they will ever be committed to him. Even, even in the face of fulfilled promise. This is how God loves. This is how he pursues us. He does it in promise. And he does it in the midst of our mess. He doesn't forsake us. <clears throat> even when we brought this stuff on us. Life may be harder, more challenging. But his love and pursuit of us is all the same. He is coming after his people. Well, what does this mean for us? As I said earlier, God's desire, if you want to use the parent-child model for us as his children, is that then we would turn to the world with this grace, the way that we have been pursued and loved, and that we would turn to the world and pursue and love the world in that way. This is his desire. When we begin to trust God, when we see his promises as he's shown us, and we, we begin to see, okay, he can be trusted, then we will desire to, and want to follow him. And this will lead us to love and pursue others as he has loved and pursued us. This is grace's mission. This is, the, this is our definition. And ultimately, we see the cross, though, as God's expression of what? His ultimate love and pursuit of us. That's what the cross is. That's how Genesis takes us to the cross here at this point. It is his ultimate pursuit and his ultimate love of us and promise, but also in spite of our mess. This is the cross that says, I am way more committed to you than you will ever be of me. We get that this morning. Or if we don't, let's hear it again. But that's what the cross is. God telling you, I'm way more committed to you than you'll ever be of me. That's grace. But our tendency towards this love and grace is not to receive it or not to trust it like Sarah and Abraham, and the rest of Israel after. But it's to doubt it. And when, when, in the way the expression that doubt takes in this is to repay it. It's to repay God for what he has done for us. God, you have loved and you have pursued me. You've given us your son, Jesus. I'm so thankful for that. I'm going to give you my life now. I'm going to give back to you everything that you have given to me. I'm going to do for you everything that you've done for me. And in that way, we think that our job then, this, this sort of a relationship, the way that it exists from a parent and child, is for us then to turn around and, and, and just sort of balance the scales here. And I want you to think about that for a second. You know, think about it, especially as, as a child in a parent relationship, what parents desire for their child would be that for you to grow up one day and to begin to recognize all that I have done for you as my child, all that I've done for you as my, my husband, my, my, my mom, my mother and father, as your mother and father. <clears throat> to realize what I've done for you and then to figure out a way to repay it. Some of us actually might have parents like that, and I apologize for, the, for this uh, illustration, but that's not the way God comes to us as our father. And we would say in that moment that as a, as a, as a parent, we would never desire for our kids to think that they would have to repay us everything that they've given us. One, how could they? But what we would want instead... 
Of course we want our kids to love us. But what I want for my kids is to somehow take whatever portion it is that I've given them of the way that I've loved and pursued them is to take whatever good parts there are of that and to do it for other people. That would be the best thing. That would be, the, that, that, that would be what I want. And that is exactly what God wants for us. He wants what a parent wants with his children. To take that grace, to not try to repay it as if we even could, but to turn it into mission. To go and to love and pursue those as you have been loved and pursued. And while we get pictures of it here in Genesis, we get the full picture of it on the cross. To remind us that you can't repay this if you tried. But that's not the point. The point is to see the the, the links and the depths of God's love and pursuit of you. To take that in. To say thank you. To receive that. And then to go and at some measure, in some way, just try to demonstrate that to the world around you. And so... The question at this point is a simple one. Do you trust God? It's a bland question for this morning. And for whatever, wherever your answer is at this point, look at the cross. Look at his cross, right? The ultimate promise kept, the ultimate and all that is his pursuit and his love of us. Look at that. Do you trust him? Could you trust him this morning? The one who doesn't, you know, just love and pursue us in the midst of our mess, but the one who actually what? He becomes our mess. He takes it on himself. That's the cross. What does it mean to you then to see someone that committed to you? What does it mean to you to see someone that committed to you before you even know who he is or who he was? And what does it mean to you to know that this person is far more committed to you than you will ever be committed to him in your life? And it doesn't prevent him from moving towards you, pursuing you relentlessly, dying for you. That's his cross for us. And so for the unbeliever or the skeptic in your life or maybe even here this morning, there is good reason in this story. Very good reason in the story, but ultimately in the cross, right, for what this story points to, to trust in God. It doesn't answer all of our questions. It doesn't answer all of your questions this morning. But what I'm saying is a God who pursues and loves like this is worth your consideration. Is it really that the Bible and Christianity is too improbable for you? Or is it simply too wonderful to open yourself up to? To trust. This story gives us good reason to begin opening ourselves up to the possibility that this God is true. And both in his fulfilled promise, but also in his pursuit of us in the mess that we create. I would say for the believer here, either struggling to trust in God's promises to you in this moment, or maybe you're wondering if he's just had enough of you and he's ready to give up on you. Or perhaps you are having a difficult time seeing his love and care and pursuit of you in general. Remembering that God is far more committed to you than you will ever be of him. is sweet grace to you this morning. I hope that it is. I hope that this grace whispers to you loud this morning that you can trust me. A friend sent me this quote. I'll end with this from uh, Eugene Peterson. 
some of you are familiar with Eugene Peterson. He passed away uh, this past month. And he sent me this quote that was read by his son, Leif, uh, at his funeral. Um, at the funeral, Leif said this about his dad. He said that his dad only had one sermon. And this is actually true for most preachers. He said that he had everyone fooled for 29 years of pastoral ministry. And for all of his books, he only had one message, Lee said. He said it was a secret that Lee said his dad had let him in on early in life. It was a message that Lee said his dad had whispered in his heart for 50 years. Words he had snuck into his room to say over him as he slept as a child. And here's what it was. God loves you. God is on your side. He is coming after you. He is relentless. God loves you. God is on your side. He is coming after you. He is relentless. Friends, God is far more committed to you this morning than you are of him. Let that be good news for you this day. I imagine the reason this was Eugene Peterson's one sermon, according to his son anyway, was because Eugene Peterson knew that this was God's one message to him in Christ. For what is the cross, right, to us but God's relentless pursuit and his coming after you, not with the expectation to repay, but to receive it. And then to love others as you have been loved and pursued. Would that be true For all of us here this morning, and if it's not, would we be willing to ask God to show us again? Let me pray for us. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the message of Genesis 21, where you are the promise keeper. You love and pursue us in the midst of your promises and how you keep them, but also in the midst of our mess and how we disobey and how we just don't trust you. But it doesn't stop you from loving and pursuing us, for being for us, for coming after us. And we need to hear that this morning. We need to know that, that you have not left us or forsaken us. And may we gaze upon the cross with those eyes, with that disposition even, to have our hope and our faith strengthened at this time. We pray this for your glory. In his son's name, amen.